Peter Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Well, hello and welcome to our 100th broadcasting of The Switzer Show. Paul Rickard, of course, joins me. I'm Peter Switzer, of course. That's what we call it, The Switzer Show. But Paul Rickard is my sidekick. How are you, Paul? I'm great. Thank you, Peter. Welcome to The 100th Show. Great to be called a sidekick as well. I think that's, yeah. I think that's meant as a compliment, Peter. Oh, yeah, in, in the radio land, like sidekicks, Doug Mulray had Andrew Denton. He was his sidekick and... Uh, Followed up by the great Dave Gibson, who did the introduction for us. You know, he's Mr. Farmy and all those famous characters. And do you remember, of course, uh, Bert Newton and his yeah, Don Lane? Yeah, Bert Newton. Don, uh, Don uh, Lane that, that makes me it, it does, and I actually think Bert Newton became the star of that show. He did. So yeah. I, I'm, I'm happy <laughs> Your to aspirations. Think, <laughs> not oh. aspirations, uh, but a bit of fact and reality, I think, Peter. Okay, Is that right? so you're, <laughs> you're, you're going to be the, uh, the moon face of the 21st century. Uh, old moon face was uh, Bert's nickname, wasn't it? Anyway... We, we do digress, as we often do, but this is our 100th show, and I believe we're going to take a little bit of a stroll down the 100th program memory lane. I'm Peter Switzer. I'm joined by my colleague, Paul Rickard. Hi, Paul. Hello, Peter. Now, you're the kind of guy who really gets off when you get close to election time. I'm Peter Switzer, joined by my colleague, Paul Rickard. Hi, Paul. I'm fantastic. Thank you, Peter. I haven't asked that question yet. How are you, Paul? <laughs> I'm Peter Switzer, and as always, well, not always, sometimes he goes away. I'm Peter Switzer, and this week I'm not joined by my colleague, Paul Rickard. He's off swanning around the country having a good time, but I'm having a good time doing The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer, and today I'm on my own. My colleague, Paul Rickard, is swanning around Europe, the lucky so-and-so, but hey, I'd rather be here with you guys. I'm Peter Switzer once again, doing this all by myself because my colleague, Paul Rickard, has decided to enjoy himself on a holiday in Europe. Anyway... I don't need Paul Rickard. I know he's not listening. He's probably enjoying himself, but he should be. I'm Peter Switzer. I'm joined by my colleague, Paul Rickard. Hi, Paul. Good afternoon, Peter. Great to be back after a couple of weeks' absence. But uh, Don't worry. I, I have complained about your absence for most of the time when you were away. I'm sure you probably have. I'm Peter Switzer, and as usual, when he's not on holidays, I'm joined by my colleague, Paul Rickard. I'm Peter Switzer, and as per usual, unless he's not holidaying around the world and leaving me by myself, my colleague, Paul Rickard, joins me in the studio. Paul? Look, I'm not holidaying, <laughs> holidaying around the world, Peter. Thank you. Good afternoon. I'm Peter Switzer, and as always, unfortunately, I'm joined by my great colleague, Paul Rickard. I'm Peter Switzer. I'm joined, as per usual, unless he's holidaying overseas. I'm Peter Switzer, and guess what? Paul Rickard's not here. So I feel as though, like I'm a kid, the parents have gone away, and I can do exactly what I want with my own uh, radio show. And that is fantastic. I'll miss Paul to a small degree, but only to a small degree. I'm Peter Switzer, and as always, unless he's holidaying overseas, which he's done twice this year, is Paul Rickard. Paul, thanks for joining us on the show. Glad I could be here, Peter. I know I'm not holidaying, and uh, great to be with our listeners. You have done two holidays this year, haven't you? Uh, <laughs> Someone's phone was on. <laughs> yeah. The holiday guy had his phone on. 
Well, I didn't realise, A, that I bagged you so much, and I didn't realise so many bloody holidays you had. It sounds like I've been around the world in 80 days and done a lot more, Peter. But yeah. uh, look, I think I was actually in here in spirit, if not in person. <laughs> and uh, yes, you did bag me. But that anyhow, that's, uh, that's probably enough of rem- reminiscing about the past. past. This is our 100th show, so we should talk about what's on today, Peter. Yeah, and that's a great lineup. We kick off with Hamish Douglas, the founder of uh, Magellan which has been a, a fantastic performing Australian uh, uh, fund. Uh, and they, they've done so well, Peter. I mean, uh, I think if you talk to any of the financial planners out there, there's probably not a financial planner that doesn't have Magellan in its suite. Yep. And uh, it's given that company such a huge capitalisation because it's uh, had such a fantastic track record. Yeah. So, but like all good companies, uh, they've struggled under the coronavirus. So we're very interested to see how Hamish is looking at the coronavirus uh, does he think that the, uh, the the issues, the challenges will be going away quickly or slowly? And how is he investing? That's going to be the, the source or the, the subject of our conversation with Hamish. And then we've got Ross Walker. Ross is a cardiologist, a guy who's... Doctor. Ross Dr. Walker. Ross Walker, yeah. yes, and he's, he has his own radio program on the Macquarie Radio Network. I listened to that on Sunday night driving back, uh, yeah, from my farm. That was part of my He's business. entertaining, isn't he? He is entertaining, and, of course, that goes right across Australia. And, uh, yeah, look, uh, 7 p.m. on uh, 2GB, uh, 4BC, BC, 3AW, there's an Adelaide subject, 6PR, I think, Canberra, Canberra Melbourne. Right well, across the country. Okay, but, that's, uh, no, that's a good enough plug for Ross. Yep. The bottom line. <laughs> he asked for the plug, we gave it to him. No. <laughs> so he's on the program. He's going to be talking about how scared we should be about the coronavirus. He's not that scared, is he? No, he's not. And I, I think uh, I think we need to put more pressure. I think that some of the states are being very slow here on yeah. some of the restrictions, Peter. Yeah. All We've we got to start balance. thinking about the economy. Yeah, we want balance here. And then finally, we're talking to Shane Oliver because a lot of people are worried about how do we pay back all this money that's going to end up being debt for the government. We'll see if uh, Shane is as spooked as some of the untrained people out there who are spooked. So first up on the show today is Hamish Douglas, the founder and chairman and CIO of Magellan Financial Group. Hamish, thanks for coming on the program. A pleasure, Peter. All right. There are so many questions I want to ask you, but I think the starting point should be you've been known as a very good risk manager hence the success of your funds. But have you ever imagined what has happened in the sense that economies have been forced into lockdown and closures because of the coronavirus? Well, Peter, the first thing I'd say, I would put this in the classic sort of black swan uh, uh, territory. And, you know, saying that, you know, we expect the black swans are going to occur. Uh, And, you know, I've often cited a global pandemic or a major bioterrorism event as a black swan that is very likely to occur in our lifetime. Of course, when they occur, are completely unknown. And and probably the economic consequences and how they play themselves out, there's no real playbook that tells you how things are going to play out. So did we forecast exactly how economies and how shutdowns would happen in advance of this pandemic? Uh, no No, we didn't. But does it surprise us that you could get a very major economic reaction to a global pandemic? No, that doesn't surprise us uh, uh, either. But, you know, we manage the portfolio, particularly the risk in our portfolio, to cope with the unknown, to cope with an uh, event like this. We run a portfolio 
that has very unusual characteristics. We have something called a combined risk ratio that looks at sort of drawdown and volatility risk, and we always keep that risk below 80% compared to, to, to market. So when this thing struck, and no, we hadn't predicted exactly what would be the consequences, but we often talk about being struck by an unknown event, our portfolios actually proved to be very resilient and performed much, much better than the market. Uh, uh, perform. So mm. we expect the unexpected. Do we expect the timing of this one? No. Do we expect exactly how it would play out? No. But in investing, you have to be prepared for the unexpected. Mm. I, I know I, I look back on the stories that I was writing from about late January, and there's at least five where I was a bit perplexed how come Wall Street was just so relaxed about the coronavirus in China. And I, and they, and I think in the, every story I wrote was um, pointing out that the World Health Organization was fairly relaxed about it as well. Um, you know, it, with hindsight, are you surprised that it took who a long time to work out the potential pandemic implications? Um, no, I'm not surprised because the near-term analogies with SARS and MERS, so a lot of people were studying SARS and MERS, and we were, and effectively how they got uh, uh, dealt with. And the initial data coming out from the World Health Organization and also China very much looked like this was a localised epidemic and was unlikely to be a global pandemic. And, and I think if you had that reference and you had MERS and SARS, and, and frankly, we were in that camp because we were looking at all the data it looked like it was very high impact event in Wuhan, but outside of Wuhan, it looked like it was really only by travellers and it was getting caught. And even the travellers around the world uh, that were coming from China were getting caught and it looked like it was going to be a localised epidemic. And it wasn't for a number of weeks later when it, when it spread actually into Korea, Iran and Italy, the whole picture then started to change. Mm. Uh, so it wasn't until the data started to change that it looked much more like a pandemic. And once you started to think it was a pandemic, uh, then the whole situation was changed. Okay, um, Hamish, a lot of people are asking me this question. I'm sure you're getting the same question as well. Do you suspect we've seen the low point of this sell-off? Not to say there won't be another leg down, but do you think the worst of it is behind us? Uh, the, the, the answer to that, Peter, is I don't know. And I know that's not a very helpful answer, but mm. we really are in uncharted uh, waters. I, I don't think there's any playbook. Anyone who's really alive investing has an event like this that they can say, is, we think we have a fairly good reference point for determining how this will play out. We still don't know very much about this uh, virus. We don't know how long it's going to take until we get a uh, a, a cure, the, 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 the mitigation of this, of shutting down the economies has the potential to cause, you know, enormous economic and social uh, uh, damage. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it's difficult to predict exactly what happens next when we start trying to open up economies and how effective that's going to be. You know, are we going to have a V-shaped recovery? Are we going to have a recession? And that could look anything from a fairly shallow recession to a very prolonged and deep recession. Or at the other end of the spectrum, we could have a depression. You know, And depending where you are on that spectrum, um, we, of course, could have massive down legs in markets if we're at the sort of more severe end of those spectrums. I don't think we're going to get a depression in any 
developed world economies, mainly because of the policymaker response and the scale mm. that has been uh, undertaken. But nor do I think it's likely we're going to get a V-shaped recovery. Um, it would be nice, but I think that that is probably optimistic thinking. So it's very likely we're going to get a recession. The problem is, is it is pure speculation at this point to determine what the shape of that recession looks like. And, and, and you know, so if we get a pretty severe and prolonged recession, um, that isn't being priced in by the markets uh, at, the, uh, at, at the moment. So, you know, are we going to get another major um, down-legged market? It's absolutely possible, uh, Peter. And I would tell people to be cautious at the moment and don't get overconfident uh, thinking you know what it's going to look like. Just because uh, they're flat in the curve, doesn't mean we're out of the economic woods. It's relieving from a humanity point of view that we have flattened the curve, but flattening the healthcare curve doesn't necessarily mean we're not going to have a severe economic outcome. We may well get out of this fairly unscathed, but we could we could actually have a very severe uh, recession as well. I, I must... Um Revealed to you in 1987, October 87, when the market crashed and I was still lecturing at uh, University of New South Wales but working for Triple M in those days, uh, I interviewed the great John K. Galbraith from his home in Geneva uh, and I actually asked him the question, you know, what do you think is going to happen, you know, particularly to the stock market and the economy. And I always remember his, his answer, which is very similar to yours. He said, Peter, I don't know. He said, uh, and most there are many economists out there who will say the same thing. He said, but there are a whole lot of poor fellows out there who don't know they don't know. And I think that's the situation we find ourselves in right now. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. Actually, Charlie Munger was, was, was interviewed in the Wall Street uh, Journal uh, uh, in the last week. And, and he, he, he made a comment along the lines. He said, everybody talks if they know what's going to happen. And nobody knows what's going to happen. Mm. Yeah, exactly right. How much cash are you holding now compared to you know, your normal holdings? Yeah, well, well, at the at coming into this, we were holding around six percent uh, uh, cash, which was pretty much fully invested. Between sort of two and sort of six percent is fully invested for us. We're now over fifteen percent uh, cash, so we've made our portfolio substantially more. Uh, we can go up to 20% cash. So we're sitting at over 15. I don't want to give the exact mm. number, but the last thing we disclosed was, uh, was around 15. We're now over uh, 15, so somewhere between 15 and 20. Uh, and it moves around with markets moving around. Uh, obviously, cash is a fixed number, but markets go up, your cash holding goes down, and markets go down, your cash holding goes up just mm. because of the mathematics of, of that. But we're pretty defensive at the moment, Peter. Mm. Is a vaccine crucial to a sustainable rebound of economies and stock markets? Uh, I, I don't think the answer. I think a vaccine could be crucial crucial to ending this health crisis, and of course, we get the herd immunity with a with, with, with a vaccine. The problem about a vaccine it's very unlikely, from everything we read, um, to be fully tested and then scaled up and widely available around the world for another eighteen months. And therefore, it's probably a vaccine itself, whilst it will ultimately solve the health issue, it's probably not going to come in time to save the economies uh, around the world. But the thing that would make a huge difference is the discovery of an effective therapeutic. 
Uh, you know, there are lots of existing drugs that have been tested at the moment. Uh, and if there is a drug or a combination of drugs that could dramatically mitigate the most severe cases in terms of curing those people or curing a vast majority of those people who need uh, who need ventilation, um, uh, that could take away a lot of the uh, the downside risk to the economy because, of course, things could open up much more efficiently if the fear went out and the fear both in the healthcare system but also people moving around. If they knew they got sick or they infected an elderly uh, person, that that person was much less likely to die from the uh, virus. The problem here is that whether or not we get a therapeutic out of many that have been tested is pure speculation at the, at the moment. A lot of sort of non-clinical data is coming out uh, uh uh, at the at the moment, um, and I don't think we or anyone else has a real advantage. There may well be one of these drugs that turns out to be a very effective uh, uh, therapeutic. We're not going to speculate on that, but if it happens, that could change the shape of this very dramatically. Uh, I interviewed uh, Michael Knox, who's a pretty good uh, econometrician from Morgan's, and. Uh, he was talking about how the Fed had done some work on the Spanish flu and how uh, non-pharmaceutical interventions, effectively social restrictions, um, where they were actually kept on longer than other places, the economic rebound was, was very strong. And he was saying, particularly when you put in the level of um, stimulus packages around the world, that there's a very good chance that we might see a, a rendition of the roaring 20s of the 20th century in the 21st century. So are you expecting a big economic um, growth phase 2021 and onwards? Uh, Peter, I don't know the answer to, to, to that. I, I think this is dif- different to the Spanish flu. That, was, that, that, that came right at the tail end of the First World War. Uh, so there was a naturally very strong economic phase that would, would, would have come out even without the pandemic, you know, I suspect we would have seen economies recovering and investing um, ex the, post the, uh, the First World War. So I, I don't think we've got that situation. We're at the tail end of a long economic expansion here. So I think the facts are quite uh, 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 different. You know, if we get a therapeutic and we can reopen, I, I can see a strong recovery happening in that case. But if we get a prolonged recession and we have to almost wait for a vaccine, um, I could actually see a very prolonged period of very high unemployment. I'm not talking about depression, but let's talk about 10% unemployment lasting for five years. I I can see that and I can see the negative feedback loops that start to happen with elevated unemployment extended period. You could start a property market and corrections to property markets and what that does to wealth effects and what that does to demand and then that what how it how it had feeds on it, 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 it itself. So at this stage, I, I think you shouldn't get overconfident that we're going to get that strong bounce back. It really will depend upon upon both the health side and the ability to reopen uh, things up and get demand back in the economies because even when we reopen these economies, first of all, I think there'll be whole series until we have a cure that effectively can't be reopened. I think international travel is going to be very hard. I think large gatherings are going to be very hard. I think pubs and clubs with alcohol is going to be uh, harder until we effectively get a cure. And even if we get the curve right down, remember this started with one person in China. 
So even one infected person without social distancing can cause this whole thing to, to come back without a, uh, without a, uh, a, a cure. And the downside risks are very, very large. So I can see that strong recovery, but I can also see the other, the other outcome as well here. And, you know, I would much rather stay on the side of caution here until we have some more evidence of what lies ahead on the healthcare side of things and human behaviour as we start to open this up. You know, Warren Buffett has a very great saying to remind investors, um, and particularly in an environment like this, it's interesting that Warren doesn't seem to be swinging the bat at the moment where normally he's greedy when others are fearful. Mm. You know, Charlie Munger was very cautious here to say this is a very different circumstance. Um, and Buffett says to finish first, you must first finish. Um, and, and therefore, I think just caution at the moment. If you if you miss the first part of the upside because things are more benign, um, so be it. I'm not I'm not saying people should be fully to cash. We're we're over eighty percent invested, Peter. So we're we're very exposed ultimately to equity markets. Yep. But we want to we want to keep a defensive side uh, to this until we have more data. We don't have to wait for the unemployment data and the economies to recover. Of course, markets will price that beforehand. But we do need to have more data to get more confident about the shape of this looks like. So what companies do you think look attractive now? Like, let's imagine that the worst case scenario is avoided. That Let's imagine that, you know, sure, we get some, some legs down before you know, we start getting back to work and things are working out the best way. What companies look attractive to you? Well, it's a nice try, Peter. I'm, I'm not <laughs> going to give specific. I'm not going to give specific companies or or or, or, or stock tips. So well, not I, not, I even, not even Magellan. You wouldn't even plug Magellan. No, no, we, I, I never plug. I never plug Magellan, uh, Peter. You know that. I let people make their own minds up on, <laughs> okay. on Magellan. Um, but I, I would say that we're pretty confident with the hand that that that, that, that we have. We have substantial cash. We've reduced our exposure to things that I would regard as most cyclical. So we've reduced exposure to businesses that are most exposed to emerging markets. I think emerging markets could be very ugly um, uh, uh, here potentially in a downside uh, scenario where we're less exposed to things like luxury goods than we were because it's very uh, uh, discretionary. We've got over 60% of the portfolio in, in in cash and in, well, less than 20% in cash, but over 40% in things that are very defensive, a number of consumer staples, uh, Nestle and Record Bank Kaiser. I'm not giving you a stock tip there, but they no. Record has a very large hygiene business, and you can imagine hygiene being mm-hmm. uh, fairly in favour at the moment. I expect in favour for an extended uh, period of time. Utilities, we've got long-term investments in, in things like Microsoft and SAP, and they're... they're really enterprise software companies. We've got this whole trend to video conferencing and productivity. I think those businesses are sort of well uh, uh, well, well positioned. We have some Chinese technology platform businesses. So we think we've got a whole series of things that are going to do well irrespective of taking a view. And I think that's important. There are things that will do well that irrespective of taking a view. And then you really have to think there are investments that you may want to skew to things that are slightly more cyclical that will bounce back stronger if we get an economic recovery. I think it's too early to make those calls, but we're certainly doing our homework on 
things within our viewfinder of things that we think are more exposed to an economic recovery, but then things that could do very well in a severe recession relative to markets. And we're just bifurcating our, our view of opportunities depending on, and we will act on the different investments when we have a clearer picture here in terms of spending our, um, our, our cash here. But I would say to people, focus on quality. You know, be very wary of highly leveraged businesses at the moment. Um, you know, you could get the highest return um, from things in the next five years that have the greatest risk, but you could also get wiped out. So, you know, I, I think a bit of caution here. You shouldn't be swinging for the fences in this environment. Stick to quality. Um, uh, uh, quality wins in the uh, in the in the long term. Hamish, thanks for joining us, and I hope you're released from home detention ASAP. Thank you very much, Peter. Great to speak to you as always. Well, it's time in the program when we do an ad, Paul, and, and because you and I haven't really prepared for that, let's do a no ad ad. Let's do a no ad ad without mentioning uh, the rich join the rich club. No, don't mention that. Okay, done that. Uh, and the switch report. Don't mention that as well. Okay, that's the end of the ad. Okay, no ad, no more ad. For our hundredth show, I couldn't do this without the redoubtable. Ross Walker. What does redoubtable mean? Does everyone know? It's often used for, for people who other people really think are great, and I, that's what I think Ross Walker is. Does redoubtable actually mean that you're undoubtable or what? Maybe you're doubting again, Peter. <laughs> Hello, <laughs> Ross. <laughs> I, I, th- I, th- I think it means eminently sensible, solid, yeah. Uh, yeah. considerate. I'll accept all of that. All those yeah. things. No, I, don't trust I, resemb- I resemble those comments. Yeah, but I, I must that's true, very true. But I don't, I don't trust Paul on words. Words is not really his strong suit. But, <laughs> but I, do, uh, do, um, I do get off the subject. And, and this do. from a man who doesn't know what a paragraph and a, and a, and a, and a, and a colon and a, and a it actually yeah. means. Is that right? Is that right? <laughs> this is the hundredth show, so put the right time that Paul and I have a public spat. See, I write the stories, I write the stories, and I dump it on him to check the facts out, and he gets really cheese off of it. But I'm, how good, do you at, have I'm good at stories, and he's good at facts. So it's a great, it's a perfect team, isn't it? Well, it is, and I, can I say I'm delighted that an economist doesn't know what a colon is. Let's leave that up to the gastroenterologist. <laughs> okay, let's get to the real reason why we're talking to you. Uh, I had a, a, an interesting conversation with a person who um, has very strident, strong views on what's going to happen to the world economy, the stock market, and all that sort of stuff. And he, it, it is based on the fact he says, and he's not qualified to say this, but he says this, and I know other people agree with him. He says that we have to have a vaccine before we get back to work and the oh. economy starts becoming progressively normal. Now, yep. th- I wanted to go to you, Ross, because you know, I know you are qualified to make a comment on this because you are a cardiologist. You do have patients that where uh, the immunity issue is pretty important. So I figure um, you are the guy who would have a, a pretty strong view on this. I know, but I'm also speaking to two gentlemen who like facts as well and, and, and numbers. Let me give you some numbers about what's happening in Australia. Let's forget about other places around the world where COVID-19 is a very, very serious problem. But Today, so far, there have been 19 new cases. Yesterday, there were 34. There were, we were told 
the intensive care beds would be overwhelmed with this disease. At the, the, there's 2,500 intensive care beds in Australia. We've got 71 people in intensive care with COVID-19. We've had 63 deaths in three months. Uh, we had 900 deaths from influenza in four months last year. And there's just around 6,500 cases of, of, of that have been in Australia of coronavirus so far, of which 3,736 have recovered. Now, I'm giving statistics that are probably out of date when people listen to this podcast, but what I'm saying is where, where is the, the actual reality with all the hysteria we've had about COVID-19 in Australia? Now, the reason why we're not getting the same degree of disease they have in New York is because New York has 25 million people on any one day in the New York City, which is about a quarter of the size of Sydney. We have 25 million people in the entire damn country. So the dose of virus these people are being exposed to is so much more than what we're getting. So for some person to keep the hysteria saying we've got to wait to the vaccine, which, mind you, may never happen. We may never get a vaccine against COVID-19. But let's look at... All we can look at, what has happened to the other coronaviruses? SARS and MERS were much more lethal diseases, but they died out quicker than, than COVID-19 because they weren't as contagious. But again, they only hung around for a few months. Now, we, now if you can believe anything coming out of China, the, the disease rates have dropped right off there. There has certainly been some evidence that the virus is mutating to becoming more benign in places like Singapore. And yes, I agree, there was a bit of a bump up in the cases in Singapore, but that was again because of the South Asian population living in these huge dormitories where they're all on top of each other. It's all about what we spoke about last week, viral load. It's the dose you're getting. So in Australia, we're not getting much of a dose of these viruses apart from a few pockets arising here and there or, or the floating uh, Petri dish, i.e. the Ruby Princess, which has killed about 19 people already. So, so I, I think there's a bit of hysteria around this virus and there are people, and let, let's look at one of the chief medical officers of Australia made the prediction about a month ago we'd see 15 million cases out of our 25 million population and 150,000 deaths. Now, where's the damn evidence for this? So you've got, you, to make these outrageous comments about we can't get back to normal till we have a vaccine or, or we're going to see all these people dying in Australia from this condition, where is the evidence? Because it just ain't there. So, Ross, I want to ask you about two things. I want to come back to the difference between a vaccine and a treatment. But before I do yep. that... Just a little bit of context around Northern Hemisphere versus Southern Hemisphere. They're yep. going into summer, we're going into winter. Yep. Uh, is that going to make a difference to what happens in Australia in terms of getting Look, out mate, of this? It's, it's a brilliant question and potentially, yes, it might make a mild difference. But the difference between Southern Hemisphere winters and Northern Hemisphere winters is Northern Hemisphere winters are freezing cold. So in Wuhan where this started, they were talking about Temperatures around zero, sub-zero, uh, going to places like uh, northern Italy and Spain and, and New York where it's freezing cold. At the most, in most parts of, of Australia, we get to it down to about 
15, 16 degrees. So it never gets to that point where it's freezing cold. So we won't have the same environmental temperatures nor the same degree of pollution as they had in, in the Northern Hemisphere. So yes, we may see a, a slight bump up in cases and I could have therapeutic egg on my face in a few months' time, but I don't think we will because we are controlling the virus with our social distancing uh, appropriate things that we're doing. But I also think we've got to start dipping our toe back in the water and saying, okay, as of two weeks away, all kids go back to school and, and let them shit pass a little bit of viral antigens, which are little bits of the protein, to each other because that's how you get immunity. And getting on to your question then, Paul, about what is the difference between a treatment and a vaccine, a vaccine is basically where you take bits of the foreign protein of the virus, you mix it up with it, some other stuff called adjuvants that are going to make it very presentable to the immune system, and the immune system then has a reaction against those foreign antigens to stop a more significant virus getting into your system and giving you an illness. So mm -hmm. a lot of people who get the flu vaccine say, oh, I had the flu vaccine and I got the flu from it. No, you didn't. You had a flu-like reaction to it because it has similar proteins to the, the influenza virus, but it's not actually the, the virus that can actually make you very, very sick. And so if you had a bit of a reaction to the flu vaccine, if you actually got the 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 influenza virus without the vaccine, you would have been so much sicker. So you multiply your symptoms by about 100, and that's probably what would have happened. So that is a vaccine where, you, where you're basically simulating the illness with a similar type of protein, but not getting the full-blown full virus itself. Now, treatment is where you actually have a therapy that gets into the cells and the virus itself. So, so the virus is not a living organism. It's just a bit of junk protein all accumulated together. So when you're watching the news and you see that, that little round thing with the spikes coming yeah, out that's going by on the newsreader, yeah, it is a scary-looking thing. Well, that is just basically a whole lot of what we call RNA. So the coronavirus is an RNA virus, which is part of the DNA mechanism, an RNA virus with all these little bits of junk protein sticking out of it. So, so what you want to do is you want to get into how the when, once the that virus gets into a cell, you want to be able to block the mechanisms that make the virus replicate. So there's a few few potential treatments that have been tried. So uh, there, you had the Donald talking about hydroxychloroquine, and he just said, "Just take it, just take it." Well, well, again, um, it's not that straightforward. But there's some evidence that hydroxychloroquine can affect the way the virus replicates within the cell and prevents the entry of the virus into the cell. There's a there's a couple of antiretroviral agents that are used for HIV/AIDS. Uh, that in combination have been shown to have some effect as well. Probably the most promising treatment we have at the moment is the thing called remdesivir, which is another antiviral agent that has worked partially against Ebola and SARS. And they did a trial uh, that was released on 57 really sick people with COVID-19 and found that 30 of the 57 recovered quite well. The death rate was only 13% in these people, many of whom were on mechanical ventilators. So, so it was better than what you would see in an average group of people with, with sick COVID-19, which is only about probably... Five to ten percent of the population who get COVID nineteen in the first place, 80 percent of people just get a fluy sort of thing. You don't need any treatment at all. You stay home, keep away from people. But when people start to get into the very severe part of it, which is typically sick elderly people who've got a dicky immune system, or 
it's it's health workers who imagine being in an intensive care unit with five or six people with severe COVID nineteen who then are pouring that virus into the environment and they're getting a big dose of the of the COVID or the coronavirus into their system, which then makes them ill. So they're the people who get the severe version of COVID-19, which is what we call cytokine storm, where the, all of these natural um, natural chemicals in the bloodstream just pour into the lungs and can actually just eat away at the lungs. And that's the very severe version. So what I say Hit those people early and hit them hard. So it's a bit like Paul, if you or, or Peter, if you you came to me and said, "Oh, Ross, I'm getting this funny rash on my face and it's really very painful." I make a diagnosis of shingles. If I wait three or four days till the virus is really ingrained, you get this dreadful, painful rash on your face. I've waited too long. But if I hit you early with antiviral agents, I can dong the thing on the head and it doesn't cause you any issues. And that's what I'm saying we should use as far as the treatment plan goes for sick people with COVID-19. And there are certain centres around the world that are actually doing this. Okay. I know you're a doctor and I know, yep. I know you run away from matters economic and financial. Um, you defer to your far more intelligent wife when it comes to money matters. But and, what... and defer to my far more intelligent friend when it comes to money matters, <laughs> i.e. Mr. Switzer. Okay, so my, my bottom line question to you is, do you imagine, say, in six weeks' time, yep. we should have a lot more Australians going back to work and being able to do that reasonably safely? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I cannot tell you how, come the revolution I'm running the show, how this would work. Kids are back at school in two weeks. Restaurants are reopened, but instead of having 50 seats, you might have 20 seats. With the social distancing practices, I believe, continuing until we see the virus completely die out of society, which might occur in the next two or three months, it may take six months. We could see some little outbreaks in small areas that will be shut down straight away. But I think people should be going back to work. Uh, again, I wouldn't be getting on trains with, with people face-to-face on a train, but, but just by slowly moving back into normal behaviour. And, and then if any of those mechanisms, say, for example, you, in, in the next couple of weeks, kids go back to school, restaurants reopen at a limited, area, a limited uh, capacity, and then after a month, we don't see any bump up in the case numbers. They still stay as low as they are at the moment or even die further, we then get back to more, we just step step up and get back to more increasingly normal behaviour. We stop the big events like um, South Sydney thrashing Eastern Suburbs at the rugby, rugby League or anything like that. We stop those big events to allow 10,000, 20,000 people in the stadium uh, until we've seen the virus gone or until we have the vaccine. Totally agree with all that stuff. But we can get back to a degree of normality. And, and one, of, one of the top uh, microbiologist in this country, Professor Peter Collingham from ANU, he's been saying that it makes no biologic sense to stop people, a, a couple sitting on a park bench or people lying out in the sun doing a bit of sun baking or, or even going down to the beach. So, And, and a, a clever person would say, well, let's create jobs out of this. You can check people's temperatures before they go into restaurants or go into the beach and, mm. and allocate them allocate them a, a few metres away from each other. This is where you put your towel. This is where you put your towel. When you go into the water, keep away from people. I mean, it's, it's so simple to do this and you're creating jobs. I, I just don't see why some clever person hasn't said, let's start doing these sort of things. One quick one for me, Ross. I heard, I think it was Emirates, they've now introduced 
um, basically a 10-minute test for potential flies to see whether they've got the coronavirus. Can you test someone in that short space of time? Yeah, there's a few blood tests coming through where you can do IgG and IgM antibodies, but that, that's not 100% certain. I still think if, if we're going to start reopening flights, we should be having the social distancing on the flights as well. So you can't pack hundreds of people onto a, onto a three, A380 at the moment. I, I wouldn't be doing it. We've got to dip our toe in the water rather than just say, okay, it's all finished now. Let's get back to normal activity um, because otherwise we, we could see then the sort of epidemic levels that we're seeing overseas. But we're not, it has not been a pandemic in this country. There, it's just not been there. 6,500 cases in three months is not a pandemic. It's much less than we get with a standard seasonal influenza. So if we're going to be consistent, why, why don't we whip the society into a frenzy every year about influenza? People say, oh, because we've got a vaccine. But, but influenza still killed more people last year than COVID-19 has in Australia. So we can't keep saying, oh, but New York or but Northern Italy. It's a different scenario. Ross Walker, we'll leave it on that one, I think. Thank you very much for joining Thanks, us. Great to talk to both of you. Thank you. Thanks, Ross. With one of the uh, the big problems out there for lots of untrained and normal Australians is, well, how do we pay back all of this money that the government's going to be spending, which will become ultimately a budget deficit and a whole lot of debt? How do we pay it back? And the guy who I know would have thought it all through is Dr. Shane Oliver of AMP Capital. Thanks, uh, Shane, for joining us. Great to be here, Peter. Shane, let's just go through some of the, the, the big issues. And I think let's go straight to the heart of the matter. Do you think the Australian government's going to be able to pay off all the debt associated with the, the rescue package? I, I think it will. I know there's a lot of angst about this whenever the government takes on debt. And, of course, it does seem a big switch around. Only a few years ago, we were talking about getting the deficit under control, getting back to the budget and budget surplus and paying down debt. And, of course, now same government basically has let the debt blow out. Um, but I think there's several things to say about this. Firstly, I don't think they had any choice to, to not do anything, to just blindly continue down the path to getting a budget surplus this year would have been complete madness. We would have had a massive hit to the economy. Many, many, many thousands of businesses would have gone vast. Unemployment would have gone through the roof and it would have taken us a lot longer to recover the damage to the economy uh, from the shutdowns would have been magnified because of second round effects. Uh, so I think the government really had no choice. They had to do this. I think uh, the Australian government response combined with what the RBA done is, is up there with the best in the world. It may well be the best in the world because they've got this focus on, on job subsidies which keep people in their job, albeit they may be stuck at home. Um, but once the economy can open up again, they can go back to their old jobs. I mean, in the meantime, they've been getting paid along the way and their employer has been made secure. So I think that's the best approach rather than a lot of the other things we've seen around the world. Um, but and Shane, moving just, on just, from that... Just before you go on to that, I mean, maybe you could just also um, just explain the role of the Reserve Bank in this process. The Reserve Bank certainly has a role, but I think one of the things you've got to remember about Australian debt, Paul, is that public debt in Australia is not high by global standards. If you look at net public debt, it's uh, through last year, it's about 22% of GDP. The budget deficits will probably take that up to about 40% of GDP, so quite a big blowout there, but that compares to numbers closer to 100% of GDP in other countries. So compared to the size of our economy, we don't have a lot of debt. 
Um, so we're in far better positions than the US or Europe or Japan. The other aspect is that, yes, it will take a while to pay it down, but we did have high debt coming out of World War II, and we're effectively going through a bit of a war at the moment. We have to win the war. If we didn't, then many more of us might find that when the time came to go to hospital, if we got this virus, there'd be no hospital to go to. So I think we had to do this. Um, but we managed to pay that debt down after uh, World War Two, And then, of course, there's the role of the Reserve Bank. The Reserve Bank has stressed that they're not actually providing money to the government. Fair enough, they're not. Um, but they are making it a little bit easier for the government to borrow by keeping long-term borrowing rates, what we call bond rates, down at lower levels. And this was flowing from their announcement on the 19th of March where they said that they would target a three-year bond yield of 0.25%. Uh, and, of course, by doing that, it affects the whole of the bond curve, so to speak. All bond yields get pulled down as a result of that. Now, since that announcement, the 10-year bond yield has fallen from something like 1.5%. Moved around a lot on that day, but something like 1.5% to about 0.85%. So the government could borrow for 10 years at less than 1%. And that's partly because of the Reserve Bank's efforts in buying up bonds and targeting lower bond yields. But that's also that, that, that effort by the Reserve Bank, which is basically using printed money to buy bonds, uh, has also benefited the rest of it. Um, because if a government can borrow more cheaply, uh, private sector borrowing costs have also come down, and that's why the banks have been able to cut their fixed mortgage rates. It's been why they've been able to cut their variable rates. It's why they've been able to provide uh, bank payment holidays. So the Reserve Bank is playing a critical role in all of this. Mm. Shane, um, I know we economists love to um, tease the forecasting ability of the IMF, um, and but you're so gracious you probably have never done that. Um, where me, on the other hand, I have been quite vicious on the IMF in the past, but what do you think of their forecast of um, us, our economy dropping by about 6.7%, I think, and rebounding 2021 by 6.2 or 3%? It, it's in the right ballpark. Our own forecast was for a decline this year of about 6.1%. And it's interesting, the Reserve Bank governor uh, said pretty similar. It sounds like they've got a fairly similar forecast as well. And then next year, you would see some sort of rebound. So our own forecasts are fairly similar to the IMF. Okay. I mean, the IMF constantly, I mean, it, it, it slowly changes its forecasts. They sort of grind along. They typically start off a little bit too optimistic globally, and then we end up at a somewhat lower number. Um, but they have taken a big hit to their numbers that they put out last week for this year. Uh, and that reflects both Australia and globally. So there are, they are actually quite pessimistic. And I think that's probably right in, in, in a sense that, you know, we've got about 25 to 30% of the economy, which is something like 50% shut down. It will take a little bit, um, obviously, the property markets, uh, parts of retail, parts of retail still open and still doing very well. I was in flower power the other day and it's going to be booming. Um, other parts that's uh, a free shut plug. down. That's and- a free plug for flower power. Are they sponsoring <laughs> the, the celebrity economist? I was in a, whatever you call those places that sell plants. But yeah. okay. Anyway. Well, I, was, um, I was in the same shade of Bunnings the other day and it was just packed, right? Oh, you're sponsored by Bunnings as well. <laughs> oh, there we go, another one. Yeah. Yeah. I, know, yeah. I, I knew a sponsorship. Your, my, you, I might have to go for, um, well, what's Matt Cash's version of that? I don't know. Uh, hardware yeah, House. Yeah, Hardware House. Cash, oh. cash for Comet is back, Peter. <laughs> and Shane. <laughs> This is more like well, no, that, well, no cash for comments. None of us are getting paid for these comments. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in any case, 
you know, you got a big chunk of the hospitality tourism all shut down yeah. or partly shut down. Mm. So if you do the math, say twenty five percent of the economy is shut down on average by fifty percent, you get about a a thirteen percent reduction in economic activity. That's where it comes from, um, and that's mainly centred on the current quarter. You know, obviously, we're all, a lot of us stuck at home, can't go to work, can't do our jobs, and what have you. To the same degree, we might otherwise have, or we can't spend. I think that that would be the case for us. We might be doing our jobs, but we're not out there spending as much as we normally would. So that affects other parts of the economy. So that that's where you get that that hit. Uh, growth coming down, say ten to fifteen percent in the first half of the year, then providing the shutdowns start to ease as we go through May, at least by June, then we start to see a rebound in the September quarter and continuing in the December quarter. But the average um, growth rate will be around minus six, minus six point seven percent, something like that for 2020, and then you get a rebound in activity through next year. Those forecasts seem quite reasonable to me. The the hardest thing I think for someone like you to do, and ultimately AMP not only pays you for being a star on TV and radio, they they actually want your economic forecast to be right. One of the hardest things for you to do is to work out what happens to consumer spending when all these people go from their workplace to their suburban locations. Like, I'm looking at local cafes who are just shooting the lights out because they've basically got their Saturday, Sunday trade seven days a week at the moment while the poor old coffee shops in the CBD, they're lucky to be you know, on 20% of their trade. So this whole shifting around of, of consumption may well be a, maybe better than what you guys are expecting, Shane. Is, is that a concern for you in trying to work out what kind of spending is going to result? That's right. It does consist confuse things a lot. And even the numbers that get reported can be very confusing. For example, we learned last week that US retail sales had fallen by a record 8.7% in March. And this was before the shutdowns had really ramped up, or mm. partly ramped, ramped up. Uh, then when you look at the numbers, you know, a big chunk of that was the fall in the petrol price, the oil price. So that, that was a factor in there. But some of the, if you look at the underlying number, it wasn't that bad. So you are seeing this sort of almost schizophrenic effect. Woolworths doing very well. Mm. Um, cafes aren't seeing people sitting in them, but they're doing roaring takeaway trade. Uh, lots of other businesses doing takeaway, um, doing very well. Uh, hardware, home renovation type stuff doing very well. Gardening type stuff, as we were just talking about, doing yes, very well. Yes, we know. We know um, your gardening game, Sean. Yeah, so, we're so, we're so, going to throw flower power here yeah, again, are we? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we don't. I've still got to put the plants in. You know, yeah, I, I, I hope there's no marijuana plants out there. You are, <laughs> you are on the northern beaches, mate. We know you people can can do things like that. Oh, we wouldn't do that. <laughs> I thought it was mainly eastern suburbs. I know, uh, oh, we're, we're, we're old uh, coronavirus uh, t- um, <laughs> spreaders. We can't go anywhere. They're watching us. Just just going back to the uh, the debt chain, um, so you're pretty confident we can repay this, but does it mean years of you know belt tightening or higher taxes? Just just sort of put, put the crystal ball out there and just uh, let us know how you think the governments of the future are going to approach this. Yeah, that, that's a good question. We're going to have two years of very high budget deficits. That's this this financial year, the one we're currently in, and also next financial year. And then if you look at the government programs that have been announced in the last six weeks, they all virtually end um, in about 18 months' time. They all come to an end uh, because they're assuming that, uh, that the need for them will expire. So all things being equal, the budget 
would budget deficit should shrink quite dramatically going into 2021-22, but we'll still have the extra debt that we've incurred through the deficits of this financial year and next financial year. Uh, There's different ways to pay for that. Past governments have used deficit levies, budget deficit levies, including this government, so that, that is one approach to do it. You could also, I guess, delay or cancel the 2022 tax cut. Mm-hmm. Um, we could uh, cut government spending. Um, there's a whole range of paths we could go down. My feeling, though, is that, that cutting government spending probably wouldn't be a good thing uh, in this environment, or even talking about it wouldn't be a good thing. I also think it would be wrong to cancel the tax cut. I think a better approach, if we are going to try and speed up the paying down of that debt, is to try and have some sort of deficit levy. I think the government's ruled that out, but that is one option. And I think a lot of Australians would sort of say, well, okay, I was okay through the, uh, the shutdown. You know, people are still at home, still getting a salary. And I think it was essential, though, to keep businesses afloat. Therefore, I'm quite happy to be prepared to pay a little bit for a few years, but still with the promise that those legislated tax cuts, which will eventually kick in once uh, the deficit is, or the budget debt um, has come back down. So that, that's one way to do it. Uh, I think the other aspect in all of this is, you know, back to your question, Paul, about the role of the central bank. Um, there's, there's obviously the Reserve Bank, US Reserve, they're buying up government bonds, they're using printed money to do that. They're buying those bonds in the secondary market, so they're not actually giving the money to the government. Um, and those bonds still have to be paid back. But we could get to a situation where uh, the central banks just roll over those bonds as they mature, mm. and therefore you end up uh, a bit like the US in recent years, where they did buy bonds much through through most of the last decade, but they continue to hold those bonds on their books, and therefore, in a sense, they become like a bit of a perpetuity. So some of the debt ultimately never really gets paid back. <laughs> it mm. gets held by the... Uh, held by the central bank. There's all sorts of technical issues around that, but that is one way out of this. A lot, a lot of people are listening to this and probably screaming, oh, that's going to cause inflation. Well, it may one day. It may one day cause inflation. But if you're in a world where the real issue is one of deflation or very low inflation, then that's not really a concern. Mm. It's only a concern if you're a Zimbabwe or a, a Weimar Republic in Germany after World War One. But uh, the situation facing Western countries and Australia today is radically different from that. Inflation is not a threat. In fact, in the very short term, deflation is the threat, as we can see from oil prices, petrol prices, uh, falling to levels that many of us can't even remember. Yeah. And, and you drive a big V8, so it's going to be good for you, Shane, as well. But also, you know, you bring out the Weimar Republic. That's when they used to have wheelbarrows you know, filled with money to buy loaves of bread, which, of course, brings Bunnings in for Paul, like <laughs> Bunnings-sponsored wheelbarrows <laughs> yep. to cope with the inflation to go to, from used, the used coronavirus to, spending. To wheelbarrow to go to flour, flour powder. <laughs> to flour <laughs> white pots. Yep. Okay. Uh, on that subject, Shane Oliver, thanks for joining us on the program. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Peter. See you, Paul. Well, Paul, that's the end of the show. Very interesting, Hamish Douglas's point of view. Um, and Shane on, on paying back debt. And Ross, in terms of how scared we should be about the current. Well, I think Ross is right, Peter. And this being our 100th show, we can we can afford to just sort of go off on a bit of a tangent. But I Like we always do. Like we always, like, like we always well, of course, do. we never go off any tangents. We're yeah. straight to the facts here. But uh, I think governments do need to really get their finger out here and think about lifting things a little quicker. Mm. Uh, I'm worried, Peter, but uh, I'm worried because it seems to be the, 
you know, the medical, you know, I don't think governments are, we're all in tune here, but anyhow, let's see how we play out and let's hope that uh, we're all back in the workplace shortly. Yeah. I think the fact we're having the, the discussion might mean that they won't be over the top in, in delaying the getting back to business. And, and I think, Paul, even if they allow us to go back to business quicker than normal, but put rules on, like, for example, you must wear masks when shopping and when on public transport and make it masks easily available, I think people would do it to get back to normal life. And there's one other issue that uh, no one's yet talking about, Peter, but will happen is that these stimulus programs, they just won't suddenly be able to stop them. No. Right. Like, like it suddenly, you know, JobKeeper goes for six months. What happens on the sixth month and first week? Mm. <laughs> Does that mean it all stops dead? Yeah. So uh, I think there's some is- the unwind issues here are going to be fairly tricky for both government uh, and markets. So we've got to have to – the sooner we get back to work and uh, I think the easier or less the pain for that uh, transition is, is going to be. Yeah, without a doubt. So thanks for joining me on our 100th show. It's good to see you went on holidays as usual, Paul. I made it. <laughs> Thank mm-hmm. you.